0: Hi everyone, it's the Life of Gem live video podcast and we're going live tonight a little early because I'm here with the epic Christian Livermore. Say hello. Hi, I love being called epic. (laughs) She's the author of this wonderful book, The Very Special Dead. I'm going to hold it up for you, those of you watching live. And uh, we're going to get started in about 30 seconds, but we just want to make sure this works because uh, I'm having a little technical difficulty, so we can pre-schedule this as usual. So um, let me tell you about this book. It's called The Very Special Dead. It's by Christian Livermore. It's actually her third book that she's published. Her first book for those um, watching or listening in is Girl Lost and Found, um, which is a collection of short stories, and it's brilliant. It's by Alien Buddha Press, which is one of my favorite presses. They put out a lot of really cool stuff um and then her second book is we are not okay an elegy for a broken america memoir and essays and who's the publisher on that christian in blue indie blue publishing so this is a memoir and essays and it's really about the poverty crisis in america and uh, christian uses her own life as an example and then her most recent book and we're going to start right now i'm going to start reading her bio is called the very Special Dead. This is actually published by Meat for Tea Press, which I believe used to specialize in chapbooks. Now they do longer books as well. I had never heard of this press, but I really love what they put out. And we're going to talk uh, all about The Very Special Dead uh, by Christian Livermore. And I'm just briefly going to read one of the blurbs by John Burnside, who's a Booker Prize judge, 2015. He said about this book that it's lyrical, poignant, a compelling drama of social decay and personal loss. And uh, that is very true. Another one that I thought was a, a really good blurb is Jared Woodward, the twice booker shortlisted author of the Jones trilogy. And what he had to say is that it was a wonderful, haunting atmospheric story that reinvents the Gothic novel for the modern world. Christian Livermore has achieved something quite unique and extraordinary in this tale of stolen lives and loves. Woo, what blurbs. Okay, so let's start. So I'm gonna read Christian's uh, bio and then she's going to start reading a passage for us five to 10 minutes and then we'll get into the, no pun intended, meat of the S, meat of the interview because the press is called Meat Fatigue Press. And this, by the way, is being filmed, recorded on November 1st, 2023 and it's our special Halloween episode, I am wearing my Sid Vicious shirt with blood all over it that says no regrets. And Christian is there in her green sweater looking very great. Okay, so Christian's debut novel, The Very Special Dead was published by Meet for Tea Press on October 1st, 2023. And her memoir and essays, We Are Not Okay was published by Indie Blue in 2022. Um, she's also the author of a short story collection, Girl Lost and Found, oh, you got to get this too, very Shirley Jackson-ish. Um, if you like Shirley Jackson, which I do, you'll love this, by Alien Buddha Press 2021, and her stories and essays have appeared in anthologies, literary journals, including Long Roots, Santa Fe Writers Project, Salt Hill Journal the Texas Review, Meet for Tea, and Witch Pricker. She has a PhD in creative writing, which you'll see in her craft is very obvious, from the University of St. Andrews with an academic focus on medieval English literature and she's taught creative writing at Newcastle University and medieval literature at the University of St. Andrews. Welcome, Christian. Thank you. I'm, really I'm so happy to have you. So, so happy to here. thank you for coming on. And this is actually the second time you've been on. It is. Yes, well, almost one year, one year to the day, pretty much. <laughs> yes, and I love your book We Are Not Okay and that's what our last episode was about. So how about you start us off by reading a passage so people can hear your voice and you can read at the end too, but let's start you off. I'm in the background. I'm just silent. And so go ahead. So let me ask you,
1: do you want the very opening of the book which is like no dialogue and it's just a bit witchy uh, you know, or do you want um, Something with the when he goes to meet his friends. I'm inclined to just give you the very opening.
0: Do the opening and then you can do the dialogue part at the end. Okay.
1: So here we go. Much later, after the corpse had stolen his body, Bent Fisk understood the secret of death. But this morning he was just a man rising early to check the traps. The silver light faded and the moot dropped. The window showed naught but black and he knew he had to rise. He braced himself against the cold and flung off the covers, shimmied quickly into his clothes, zipped his fleece high round his throat. Jean, daughter and sister of fishermen, didn't stir. Kip! The dog jumped off the foot of the bed, stretched and clattered into the hall after him. The air bit. Kip sniffed the bare branches of the brown dead forsythia and lifted his leg. Bent watched the steam rise. When the dog had finished, they crossed the lawn, the ground still crunchy, and descended the hill. Bent opened the shed door and stepped into his waders and took the bucket and bosun's hook from behind the door. When he reached the sand, Kip was following a scent around the beach. Bent mounted the jetty and Kip left off and followed. Bent moved slow and chose his footing, feeling the rockweed quivering beneath, but the dog could not be troubled to wait and clambered ahead, nosing the crevices for hermit crabs and whatever else would run. Farther and farther out went, Bent went rock to rock, stepping on barnacles for traction where he could, holding out the bucket on one side and the hook on the other for balance, like a high wire act. At the head of the jetty, he wedged the bucket in a gap in the rocks and reached with the hook beneath the black water and fished for the first rope. It was a job finding it, hidden in the rocks as the ropes were so fish and game wouldn't find them and make him buy a license. He found the rope and drew it in with the hook and caught hold and hauled hand over hand and brought up the trap. The crabs scrabbled over each other's backs and crackled and bubbled, and one angry sook raised her red claws at him like a prize fighter waiting for the bell. Bent opened the hatch and dumped them in the bucket. Their claws scraped the plastic and the sook clambered atop the pile and scratched at the sides for a way out. Kip poked his snout in and the sook snapped at it. Kip jerked back and blinked, shook it off, and went back to sniffing amongst the rocks. Bent pulled in the rest of the traps and stood and arched his back, "'felt his joints grind like crushed glass. "'He looked across the way to Mouse Island. "'The sky was a slash of blue-hot iron. "'He whistled for Kip, "'hanging off the edge of the jetty somewhere, "'watching something slither by in the water. "'Bent turned to see what he was after, "'and the rockweed shifted under him, "'and he went down, "'and he felt his head connect with a rock. "'He jerked up and grabbed for the bucket. "'He'd made a fist round the handle "'and managed to hold it, "'but it had gone sideways.' The pain was sharp, and he worried maybe he broke the, the elbow was broken, but still he snatched at the crabs that had been thrown free and were scrambling down the sides of the rocks. He caught one or two, and Kip snapped at the others, but they were down the sides like spiders and in the water and gone. He sat up and put a, book, a hand to the back of his head and brought back blood. Kip sniffed at his face and at his hand. He pinned the bucket between his knees and worked his fingers around the elbow, flexed the joint. Not broken. He looked into the bucket. He'd lost about half. Shit. Good job one of the fugitives was the soup, anyway. Less meat. They don't bring as much. He'd still get thirty for the rest, maybe thirty-five, if he could sell to Norm. Grocery money, anyway. He tore loose a couple of fistfuls of rockweed and dropped them in amongst the blues and snapped the cover on. The crabs crackled through the air holes and Kip snuffled at them. He stood, more carefully this time, as he rose... Something skittered by along the sand to his left. He turned, but it was gone. He watched a moment, but saw nothing more. A shiver ran through him, but he shook it off. Just your imagination.
0: Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you. And we have Elizabeth uh, is here watching. Hi from Mark and Elizabeth. Yes.
1: Those are my publishers. Hi, guys. you. Oh, mm-hmm. so about you.
0: I love your press. I love Christian's book. Hello, Meet for Tea Press. Thank you for being here. I have to say, because this is going to be available on Apple Podcasts soon, that your press is just so special. So that's MFT Press. I put the link in the comments and I'll show that on my page. So let's talk about this novel. So this is your first published novel. Your your first book was a collection of short stories um, Mm -hmm. that was very... uh, gothic and um, eerie and i wouldn't call it horror but there's a lot of suspense and girl lost and found by alien boot press and you take it to a whole nother level in the very (laughs) special dead you really do you know i am a big um gothic and horror fan i read a i've read every single thing stephen king's ever wrote Mm -hmm. i love shirley jackson i love edgar Allan poe i love kind of all the masters of of this kind of suspense filled um, novel, but what is very special about your book, especially, is that you have this economic component in it mm-hmm. that um, that really mirrors what you're talking about and we are not okay when you're talking about poverty. And so the three men at issue in this novel, and we're not gonna give anything away, but they kind of, they don't, they give away their their, their bodies in a way. And these three men are all in the throes of some kind of economic healthcare distress, right? That is based on the model of this American dream that is basically broken at this point for most people um, in America. So talk about that. Talk about how you merge the realities of everyday life in the United States for many people and the blue collar or working class or even below that. You know, I there's a, there's poverty Then there's working class blue collar life. And these three men seem to be more blue collar working class. Um, they are, One of them is highly educated, I believe at Yale. So you might call him some kind of white collar. He worked in a museum, but he's struggling financially. Talk about how you merge that sense of the horror of the American dream being broken with actual Gothic uh, themes and horror.
1: Mm. Uh, you know, it wasn't a, um a conscious mm. process you know i mean um i very rarely write i very rarely set out to write anything consciously um mostly because i think it's a recipe for disaster i think if you start out with an agenda it's a surefire yeah. way to write a bad book you know because you're always writing towards your agenda and that doesn't leave you open for the kinds of surprises and possibilities that writing what the characters mm. want you to write channeling, right? Yes, channeling. That's really what we do is we channel. I mean, how many times have you sat down to write and you look at the paper two hours later and you go, where the hell did that come from? And you genuinely don't know. You don't even remember writing it. That's channeling. The best kind of writing is when we channel. So I try not to think about what I'm doing beforehand and I just write. All I knew was that I had this legend of, you know, the three living and the three dead. It's medieval legend, English and French and Icelandic kind of background to it um and well not Icelandic but uh European and I was somehow fixated on this idea of the three men who meet these three revenants on the path Uh Um, and you know because it's spooky first of all it's a scary you know, legend. Uh, they're scared, and it's very foggy. And um, one of them says, "I'm, a, I'm a feared." You know, uh, and the the one of the reverend says, "Yeah, you should be, because you know, of course, this is a religious thing." And he says, "You know, it, you're not re- living a right life, and so unless you get your act together and start living a, a clean life, you're going to hell." Um, so it wasn't the going to hell that fascinated me so much as the men meeting these these guys on the road and then I started thinking I started thinking about in a modern context what would it what would happen if that if that happened you know um and for some reason it seemed to me that I started thinking about kind of the horror of modern American life um and it, it occurred to me at some point, I was kind of just, you know, fleshing it out and writing. It occurred to me at some point that their situations are so miserable, they they probably want to change places. That's what would happen. And wow. that's, yeah, and that set me down on, uh, down that
0: road. Um, and, and, and it's so interesting because it's almost like um, the Freaky Friday thing where they're not fully agreeing to it, but it kind of happens mm-hmm. and then they're stuck right? And so then the whole book becomes, are they going to be able to get their lives back? Right. And um, it's also a little bit, um, what's that Christmas movie um, about he wishes? Oh, it's a wonderful life. There's a little bit of, it's a wonderful life, um, especially with um, the gentleman who works at the museum, that's Mm -hmm. kind of watching his family, right? Watching Mm -hmm. this this man and have his house and play with his kids. And I, that's what I found so interesting about it. You have all these tropes that you're using and, you know, there's that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where um, he goes back uh, in time and he realizes that if he hadn't lived, what, how much worse the place would be, right? It's yeah. kind of like a dystopian version mm-hmm. of uh, the city he knew. So it's just so interesting. So would you call your book horror or would you call it gothic? <sighs>
1: I mean, it's got elements of, this has been a problem since day one. What do we call this thing? Yeah. It's certainly got elements of horror in it.
0: Um, Because the Revenant figure, right? That's something kind of like, I. and I actually had never heard that term before, Revenant. And I found it very fascinating. And it is kind of a horror trope. They're almost like a zombie. Yeah. um, That some people can see and some people can't. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, and in, in, that's something I came up with, really. It's yeah. The Revenant is a, is a medieval and earlier um, motif, you know, and um, it was certainly meant to evoke horror when people wrote about it then. There were all these accounts of, you know, revenants walk, wandering around the graveyard and going to the church and killing the priest on the altar. Mm. Um, and... Um, you know, they yeah, they go in the stables and they riot among the animals in one of the Icelandic sagas, uh, a man falls off the roof, um, you know, because of them. so, and the, the, it's very well connected with plague, too. you know, one revenant went um calling through the village. he'd called the names of three people, and every person's name he called that every night died of plague. And so it's definitely rooted in horror. That's its origins. Yeah. They, would have called it probably um, a morality, you know, sort of, sort of a, a learning, you know, a, a, learning, a learning text, but really it's hard to read those texts without, without, you know, what's the lesson in this, you know, really, they killed the priests on the altar the end. What's the lesson in this? <laughs> they really just want to tell these horror stories because they're really fun and really, really creepy. And, um, So I would say it definitely has elements of horror to it. Um, You know, imagine if you were on that marshy road. It's really pretty terrifying. Um, But I I think it's also gothic, more New England gothic than horror. And it's got a lot of the grotesque about it. You know, there's a lot of the sort of Flannery O'Connor outrageousness Mm -hmm. of the body, um, you know, in these characters. So I've been calling it um, speculative supernatural. Supernatural. Okay. Yeah. I, I still haven't quite decided um what I should call it. I mean it's all and those things.
0: Maybe you don't have to, you know. I have a friend, a professor at um, a university, a writer friend of mine called named Samuel Altman, who's working on his memoir. And he and I were talking recently about whether genre matters anymore. Mm. You know, whether you call it auto fiction, memoir, whatever, you know, whatever you want to call it, right? And um I think the same is true of the very special dead. It doesn't really matter what you call it because it's such a beautiful book, and the craft is so apparent. And you know, I, I think what's lacking in a lot of pulp fiction horror, so I, I would probably deem this more like speculative supernatural work, is the character development, right? In this book, we get these, we get a lot of character development, and we got a lot of uh, social commentary, which mm-hmm. is not very common in a lot of horror, but is more common in speculative fiction. So it's almost like a cross between a dystopian and kind of speculative, but then it's taking these images of modern day life. You, you write so eloquently about debt. There's this whole conversation that I really connected with between the characters where they're talking about buying a house. And how that is uh, kind of a fallacy, like that Mm -hmm. is the way to generate wealth, right? That, oh, but you're going to have taxes and you don't really own the house. The bank owns the house, right? Mm -hmm. And then Mm -hmm. you might even take out another loan on the house and then you'll start your 30 year term all over again. Mm -hmm. And so I just felt like those things about it just brought it to a whole nother level to where I was, it's not, you're not really telling the story just to scare us or to kind of uh, shock us, but you're telling it as a commentary on modern day America, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, like Faulkner and other gothics and stuff like that. So that's that's why I think it's a whole number. Let's talk though about the research component. How much research did you do? You did just say that you base this on some, um, some myths or some stories that are in uh, European literature.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I actually did an extraordinary amount of research because I started this as part of my PhD at St. Andrews. Ah. University of St. Andrews, the PhD is half creative and half academic. So you have to produce... Um, a, an academic monograph at the same time, 40,000 words of academic work alongside, you know, 40,000 words of the novel. And so they have to be linked. And so I saw this as the perfect opportunity to do this book that I'd wanted to do. And, um, and so that it was a way to tie in the, the way to tie in an academic um, component to it was to write about medieval death and motifs of the revenant in the middle ages. Cause it was hugely prominent. So I read, Ecclesiastical chronicles. Oh my gosh! Yeah, and um, historical chronicles by guys like William of Newburgh and William of Malmesbury and um, you know Caesarius of Heisterbach and all these you know really sort of respected, sometimes not so respected, um, ecclesiastical and historic writers. and they is basically like all these accounts that they could find of these revenants, and then also the the I had to work on the motif of death and how mm. death was conceived in Christianity and in, in Roman Catholicism, um, you know how death was conceived and rising from the dead was conceived, and you know what. The right, synth- Lazarus.
0: Right. At one point, the priest talks about Lazarus. Yeah, Lazarus. Yep, yeah,
1: and which was. Um, that would have been considered a true miracle, you know, because he he did it mm-hmm. with permission of God. But the revenants, they don't fit into ecclesiastical um, sort of the ecclesiastical acceptable, you know, rec- you know explanation because they don't they rise from the dead, but they don't do it with the permission of God, and it sort of violates the church's, you know um, take uh, you know, that, 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 uh, like Augustine said that, um, um, angels, people only rise from their dead with the permission of God. And mm-hmm. it happens only in the mind of the person who's seeing them. This so All of that, the revenant stories that people kept telling blew all that out of the water. So I read all that stuff and I was reading Augustine about talking about, you know, uh, even if you're eaten by a shark, you know, at, at, the, at the day of judgment, God will know where the pieces of you are and he'll be able to reassemble the pieces so that you'll rise whole in your body if you're good. So I read I did, you know, three years work worth of medieval academic um, study. Um,
0: so I think that's probably more than usually backs up a novel. So maybe the revenants and the very special dead are a form of blasphemy, right? But I love how you kind of merge all this stuff because, you know, I always say there's a fine line between spell and prayer. Yeah. You know, um, I was trying to sell my house in Houston years back and my mom gave me a statue of um, Joseph and she said, "bury it in the yard. I couldn't get all the way to Houston to do it. and I didn't feel comfortable asking my tenants to do it. So I buried it in my backyard. I did a little, you know, spell prayer and we sold the house Mm -hmm. and uh, apparently this is something a lot of catholics do because you know the father of the stepfather because i guess god's the father of jesus so the stepfather of jesus joseph was a carpenter so apparently he's also a real estate agent and he sells houses Mm -hmm. but i would tell my mom mom that's a spell and she'd say no it's a prayer i said mom it's a spell yeah it's a prayer
1: yeah no it's a spell. I mean, you can see that like if you look in through the paper in the Catholic sections, this prayer, say it five times, guaranteed five times, guaranteed to work. Those are spells. Yeah. You know, they don't want to admit that, but you know, those are one of the things that the Catholic Church allowed pagans to to take in with them in order exactly. to convert. No, those are spells
0: straight up. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, uh, The other question I
0: have is what the link between your your first book girl lost and found and this very special dead In girl lost and found again we have these there's this um very horrifying story called boys and boys and masks Mm -hmm. right yeah where this um group of kids are kind of hanging out together and these boys in masks it's like halloween i guess right and they're chasing them and nothing ever ha- i mean i don't want to give anything away but it's not like it's not about what the result is it's more about the suspense and about the fear yeah so is fear the connecting tissue between these two books or maybe all your three books you know fear fear of not being able to eat and uh we are not okay or not being able to live fear of having to live in the very special dead and then here fear of the other right of these yeah things.
1: yeah I, I, I guess fear is a through line in my work. Um, I would have to say, you know, the writer Richard, um, the guy who wrote the nuclear bomb, the making of the atomic bomb, mm-hmm. he did a master class at NYU where I did my undergraduate. And he said that he noticed after he wrote that book that everything he wrote had a hole in the ground. Well, his father had died young and they were sort of estranged and so he remembers standing at his father's open grave when the casket had been lowered and knowing that he would never be able to sort of reconcile those issues with his father they weren't not speaking but you know there were issues as there often are between fathers and sons and so um i do think fear probably uh resonates in my work part of which i think comes from my fear of death i think i have this i have this absolute horror of death i'm okay with being dead that's fine it's the process of dying you know because i don't oh my god it's going to be painful is it going to be terrible yeah Mm -hmm. i have these terrible uh daylight you know horrors i think of it sometimes i go stop thinking about it you know but
0: um and one of your characters in the very special dad is very afraid of the pain of dying right
1: yeah yeah i would say he's very <laughs> much like me in a lot of respects yeah um like imagining his whole family killed in a car wreck and him left the Banquo, you know all you know all my pretty ones did you say all that was actually a um a daylight horror you know um, nightmare that i had once and um mm. uh, he's very very close to me in that way but i think the also the connective tissue is um fear of being preyed upon for being poor the thing about the the boys in the masks is that um jamie and her friends are going into the projects jamie lives in the projects and so um I don't know if I I don't remember if I've changed it in that book or not, but really she lives in the projects. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense of the, the boys from the nicer neighborhood feeling that they can prey on these kids because they're the poor kids. I felt that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I think there's, that's a lot of the connective tissue too, is, you know, always this, this feeling of inferiority, you know, and being abused by the people with money.
0: There's, um, in Roxanne Gay's book, um, one of her first books, she has this story about the Hunger Games. Mm-hmm. And in it, she puts herself in it and um, and is raped in, in the woods. And it reminded me of that because uh, that is really the fear of the narrator or of the of the protagonist in The Boys in Masks, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. rape. Yeah, it that, is. That these boys are going to prey on her. Yeah, that's actually that's absolutely right. It's not about the
1: boys. They're going there after her you know, and right. the boys, and the boys know that too, you know, yeah. they're afraid. That's why they're, you know, pushing her and holding on to her. They know, they know that
0: that's what could be coming. Yeah. And it's almost like this, um, you know, fractured fairy tale, like, uh, you know, it's like, has these tropes of like little red riding hood a little bit and you feel the boys in masks are wolves and they're like chasing her. And yeah. so, yeah, I just thought it was very interesting that, cause I did not, I did not, I did not really know anything about girl lost and found i just got it this weekend and i i I read really quick so i've read it twice now and i just love how um in girl lost and found the brevity of language is so apparent and maybe you had to do that because this is a abbreviated uh almost like a chapbook uh length it's only uh 87 pages I guess it's a short story collection, more like a novella, if it was a novel. And um, was that purposeful in Girl Lost and Found? Or has your writing style changed a little bit? Because I think you have a lot more exposition in uh, The Very Special Dead. And I like it both ways, right? Mm -hmm. I love the brevity here, but I also love the exposition in The Very Special Dead.
1: Yeah, I think that it sort of depends on what I'm working on. Mm. Um, And that that was written at a time, the, the boys in masks was written at a time when I was beginning to focus on short stories and to, mm. to see the right one. Cause I had never written a successful short story. I just couldn't get the genre. And then I started It's hard because you have to fit so much within it. Right. Yeah, And you have to start so late, you know, and, mm-hmm. and so in, in the, in the action. And so um. I, I write, I, you know, I think I'm brief. I, I employ brevity as a writer. You, most of the time, you know, my, my, my sentences are, are not long and I sort of get in and out as quickly as possible. I think that's probably comes from my fear of taking up space, but <laughs> and I really had to push with the very special dead because, you know, my, my, my tutor and my supervisor were always saying, slow down, you know, and I I think I wonder how much of that is because having grown up in the projects myself, I'm afraid that nobody really wants to hear what I want to say. So I have to get, you know, just not impose upon them too much. But um,
0: I know exactly what you mean by that. And I've had that same issue being a woman of color and not really valuing my voice. Yeah. Um even when I do a reading I always try to go short and whenever I go over I have this really extreme OCD guilt about it. Mm-hmm. And I I think it is about not feeling like I deserve the space to be heard.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, cuz your yeah. whole everybody's telling you you don't. Mm-hmm.
0: You know, in, yeah.
1: in cer- certain terms and that really can have an impact especially on women because yeah you know we we've been told you know we don't get a place at the table i mean and in, in every it's 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 communicated us to an, in and every walk of life and then being a latina on top of that um has to double your feeling of of you know oh i'm taking up space that other people sh- could be using you know very
0: interesting because um you know and the concept of genre fiction being itself something that's looked down upon more by the you know the literary communities and the people that say what's what matters. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was very um, starting to write when I was in my twenties and I took this class and this professor's like, "You're so melodramatic." And I'm like, "What do you expect? I grew up reading like Harlequin romance novels. <laughs> like I literally read like a hundred by the time I was ten. Wow. My parents had a library in the garage of these old the old school Signet version Harlequin romance novels." Right. So my writing was very melodramatic, but I don't think that's a bad or a good thing, it just was. But I didn't write for many years after he criticized me, and then people like Juno Diaz, who won the Pulitzer Prize for the Brief and Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, has said, you know, that sometimes these other comic book genre, graphic novel genre, speculative fiction genre doesn't get the kudos it deserves. But meanwhile, you know, Juno Diaz was working on his speculative uh, Monstro novel for years put it aside. And now people like Octavia Butler are finally getting their due right. for some of the best speculative fiction there is out there. Mm-hmm. And so I just think it's it's very interesting what the literary canon says matters mm-hmm. versus what sells and what people want to read. Yeah. And I would say your book does a, a nice hybrid of it. Like it's marketable. It's very interesting. It's, it's a quick, it's a good read. Like you're just in it, right. You don't really want to put it down. Once you get into the story of it, you want to know what's going to happen, but it also has something to say that's important. Um, so what do you think about the literary community? Like how hard was it? Number one, to find a press to publish this. And number two, um, how hard was it to market it? Right. Because we all have issues with, how to market our work my um second book tales of an inland empire girl which is a young adult memoir it starts with my dad's death when i'm 36 and flashes back and the majority is about me dropping out of high school and how did i get there but uh, people told me that genre didn't exist right they told me you can't do that you can't write a young adult memoir and i'm like uh, have you ever read "Angela's ashes that's a young adult memoir yeah. I know it won the Pulitzer and it's like, it's, he was 66 when he wrote it, but the majority of the book is in child voice and it's at him looking back at his life, but he yeah. writes in present tense scene. So talk about defying expectations of the published industry itself, how you, because even your memoir, We Are Not Okay, is not written in your typical memoir form. Mm-mm. It's written in a series of essays that are linked, that they're, they're memoir pieces but they're very um, non-traditional in some ways. Talk about that. Like, because you really are not a traditional writer and I love that about you. I think you're brilliant. I think that, you know, these three books are just the start of, of, of what you're going to put out into the world. Um, But talk about that.
1: Um, Yeah. I mean, I've, I've spent an awful lot of, you know, I spent years in the, in the wilderness writing Mm -hmm. what I thought people wanted to hear. And, um, And I thought for whatever reason that, in order to write a book, it had to be about men because, you know, because that's what I grew up
0: reading. All the books when I grew up that they yeah. gave us were about men. So I said, okay. Well, of Mice I- and Men. I had to yeah. make a separate piece. I was yeah. obsessed with F. Scott Fitzgerald when I was a kid. No, you're right. Yeah. A oh, separate piece. What a good book that was. Yeah. It is a good book. Yeah.
1: Amazing. Yeah. But there's all of about- Mice and Men is great too, but they're about yeah.
0: boys, right? Or men. Yes. Yeah. Exactly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I really struggled. Um, Until these these younger women now, they're just out there killing it. And they're, you know, they're doing, you know, books about a girl getting her period and, you know, all these kinds of things that I never thought I could write about. And so with Girl Lost and Found, I finally said, because ironically, I wrote that after The Very Special Dead. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow! Yeah, I wrote that after *The Very Special Dead*. I mean, I've done some rewriting on *The Very Special Dead*, and that's when I've started to w- say, "Well, wait a minute, w- what about Jean? And and what about you know Abby? These women deserve some due." I wasn't able to to do too much with it by because by then the structure was kind of set. But um, well, so *Girl
0: I- Lost and Found* is terrifying. Yeah, it's oh terrifying. I is don't it- want to give anything about it away, but yeah. everyone. The first essay or the first short story in this book is terrifying, like American Horror Story terrifying. You know, I'm so glad to hear you say that. <laughs> it scared the shit out of me. I swear to freaking God.
1: Well, I'm so happy because I didn't know if it was coming across as you know American Horror Story terrifying, you know grotesque, or if it was just ridiculous. But um... no,
0: it's grotesque, <laughs> it's terrifying. It's ter- and it reminded me of so many like uh, books and movies that I love. Because I am not a, um, I don't like uh, violence porn. Like I don't watch a lot of like Saw or anything like that. But Mm -hmm. I watch a lot of like suspenseful horror, like conjuring kind of stuff. And American Horror Story, the stories version. I love the short stories and I love the stuff about the witches. But yeah, uh, and you know, there's a little circus motif in that first story. I don't want to give anything away. But it is terrifying. I kept on picturing it and I just had to like, I took some Benadryl and went to bed because I couldn't get that image of the girl out of my head. Yeah, yeah, like she was kind insane. of stuck there. I can get yeah. stuck on things, you know. Yeah, it's
1: horrifying. I'm so glad that's so gratifying for me to hear your reaction. But so <laughs> that's when I started playing with the idea of, hey, I'm I'm a woman. I can write about women, you know. And and yeah. then all of a sudden things are starting to come out, but, but, so I still have this book, you know, the very special dead that I've got to market now. And it's about men and, and that's okay. Oh, but but really, yeah. I'm also trying to kind of negotiate my past relationships with men through mm-hmm. these characters, kind of figure out who they are and why they do the things they do and,
0: um, and how, what they do impacts the women. Yeah. Right. Yeah. exactly. Or who's left to kind of pick up the, Friggin' pieces of everything,
1: you know. And I had a lot of fun exploring that with Gene, you know, and how she's got a sort of she's left holding the bag while he's, you know, off playing with his, you know, his new undead friends, and um, and the tension that caused between them, you know, and the sort of the male, you know, you know,
0: failing his wife and his children, you know. I mean, the the men in this in this book abandon their families. They do. They do. Maybe yeah. not 100% purposefully, but like 90%, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's a conscious wish yeah. to leave their families and leave the stress and leave everything. And, you know, who loves who and infidel. There's all these tropes of marriage in there that I love. And they are they do abandon the people that are relying on them. Yeah. Yeah, they do. It's it's not a. It's not a good. A good look for
1: these men. Not a good look, and it's something I wanted to explore. You know, when there's a line, I I guess I shouldn't say it, but when Jean says something to him when he talks, when she's saying, "I want my kids," you know, Mm -hmm. uh, and he says um, something to her about leaving, and you know, she says, "Well." that's the difference a woman will never leave and men know that and why that's why y'all can act the way you do um mm. and it's a very you know hurtful comment but it's true but so I I was trying to I guess my point is when I talk talk about constructing these books and marketing these books I over or above everything else I consider them literary fiction I mean I, yeah. Yeah, and but that's a genre that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, it means what is it apart from having literary merit? merit, merit. So I, I I've been calling it literary fiction on a fantastical subject, um, and so mm. but that's very hard. It's been very hard to market because you know I think people hear the 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 plot, and I think they immediately are going to dismiss it as you know oh it's horror it's it's you know it's the genre there's nothing wrong right. with genre there's nothing wrong there's with not.
0: some of yeah. the most well-paid writers are mystery writers right mm-hmm. yeah and it's because it's genre specific and i'm not a mystery person i always flip to the end not something i love but i have read every single thing that stephen king has ever done mm-hmm. and i will go to blows with someone that denies that the Gunslinger series of novels is not one of the best pieces of American literary fiction out there.
1: Well, and stand by me. He writes literary fiction on horror subjects. He really does. And think about, you know, Shirley Jackson, The Lottery. is. Terrifying, you know. Terrifying, and it's, yeah. It's, and it deals with issues of class and hierarchy in these small towns. um But it's literary. And think
0: it's- of Wuthering Heights, you know, the Bronte's and all that, gothic novels that kind of, you know, were the first women that were writing that kind of stuff that were able to get published. It's just so interesting that you're writing more from a feminine perspective and Girl Lost Be Found, and then you're writing from this male perspective and, um, The very special dad. Um, So I just find that super interesting. So talk about how you found a publisher for the writers who listen in and who are going to listen in on Apple Podcasts. Talk about how you found publishers and kind of any suggestions you have for people. Because you and I have talked about the agent route didn't work for either one of us kind of thing. And that we both both went with small presses and I love small presses. Me too. Me too. And I'm inclined to
1: just stay with small presses. Um, I, I, I submitted to every mainstream press in the, in the world and all the agents in the world and nobody, um, you know, it wasn't a bite from anybody. They they couldn't my they couldn't understand it, you know, they couldn't understand how they would market it. And at the end of the day, they want books that are gonna make money, then they want books that they can pigeonhole. This is horror, this is romance, this is, you know, and so these books that straddle genres don't really fit in the marketing world. Mm-hmm. Especially with as few books as they now put out, they're putting out fewer and fewer books.
0: And so, you know, they, they, there's been a heyday in independent presses, which is interesting that, that there's that kind of, you know, issue, the tug of war, like who's going to win kind of thing. I think small all presses well. I think the
1: small presses will too, because quite frankly,
0: they're, they're, you know, the the big
1: four aren't doing their jobs and the independent presses are saying that they're saying, okay, if y'all aren't going to do your jobs, we're going to do it for you. And we're going to pick good work and we don't care if it's marketable and we don't care uh, how much time we have to spend figuring out what to call it. It's Ulysses marketable. Yeah, exist yeah we're gonna spend an entire day with this Jewish guy in Dublin and right. you know, I mean it's crazy who the hell it what what you know what even is that um but those are the kinds of books that come out of nowhere because people want something new they don't want you know every book nowadays that comes out of the mainstream press seems to be out about middle class families and you know middle
0: class oh, Yeah. I mean, can we not even middle class? Let's be honest. They're talking about private schools and all this shit that I could give two shits about when my mom's living in subsidized housing. Yeah, I'm arguably white collar. Mm -hmm. I'm a public defender. But like I come from a blue collar background and those are the stories I want to hear. I, think I don't those want stories. to hear about private school disputes. Yeah.
1: No, a lot of people don't want to hear those stories. I guess when I was using the term middle class, I was referring to the British middle class, which mm. is a whole different thing because they have an actual aristocracy here. So they can't be upper class because they're not nobility. So they're oh. middle class, even though they're fairly well off. You know, they're pretty, what we would call wealthy. They're called middle class um, simply because they're not nobility. But um and the trouble is that more and more publishing, and I'm not s- trying to slam publishing houses, mainstream right. houses, but more. Oh, and I
0: more- am. I think it's <laughs> shit. I don't yeah. want to read American Dirt that's written by some woman that doesn't even know what she's talking about. I want to read Renia Grande, who came across the border herself. Yeah. Do you exactly. know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think that the
0: true th- thing is that publishing page case- she is with the big press now. Don't don't get me wrong, but her first right. books were not, right? And so what I'm saying is for a lot of writers, it takes a lot, you know, maybe eventually go with the big press, but the majority, even Sandra Cisneros, the majority of her books first came out in small presses, right? Yeah, well- Desmond Ward's first book, I think maybe her first two books came up, came out
1: with a small press before people finally realized, hey, I think she might be pretty good, you know. Um, but, and I think also publishing doesn't pay so well. And so you really kind of have to be a trust fund baby and a little bit wealthy to even work in publishing. And it's this echo chamber. They, they know what they grew up with. And that's their reference point. They don't know how to consider other kinds of work. And so they want work that they that represents a world that they know and I think that's a problem because when you've got every book being about this kind of world there's nothing for the vast majority of us who you know the vast majority of us are not wealthy we're people who grew up in the projects and ate government cheese and struggled across the border and and um you know scrapped our way through college crawled up by our you know clawed fingers on the edge of the you know, just for
0: 10 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: And those are the kinds of stories we want to see is about our the stories about
0: ourselves. Um and that's not happening at the big presses. And so the small presses- And it's not happening in a lot of MFA programs, let's be honest. Oh um, no. I'm in a low res one. So everyone I work with is working full time. Everyone I'm in school with is working full time. But still it that even skews a little young. Oh, yeah. and I'm always like I'm 52 years old. I really don't need to hear your bullshit about what you think about my story if i'm not going to value it if you're 20 years old uh, and you're privileged not that everyone in my program is very few are actually i mean yeah. i've been really lucky but i've heard these horror stories of um you know it's a gentrification right when you go do um let's say you graduate from back you get your bachelor's and then you go do an mfa program and you're fully funded and you're not really working and you just have all the time in the world again In an MFA. And I remember I got a full ride at UC Riverside, but I was a public defender for 10 years. I would have had to lose my pension. I was like, can I work? They do not allow you to work full time your first year in a full time. And I'm like, I can do both. I can. Yeah. I do more than that now. Yeah. But it, it's, it's, um, it's a prerequisite, the wealth yeah right or the ability to be leisurely yeah it's like we don't have i've never been leisure i've been working since i was 14. yeah 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 me too earlier than that the leisure class right
1: yeah Yeah. Well, that's so that's why so much writing is about the leisure classes, because Mm -hmm. they're the ones writing the books, you know, and they have the free time to do it and they can do the free internships at the publishing houses that get them to get the connections to get these books published. And look at I'm not knocking, you know, if you can get a book published, more power to you. But. I want to read something more than about your middle class life you know I want to read about people like us people who I know people who struggle like people who can't pay their mortgage you know people who don't have enough food in the pantry you know people who
0: take the bus I'd rather hear a story about someone at a bus stop Mm -hmm. than someone at some let's for example probably a bad example but whatever I can't think of anything else right now the sex in the city reboot and, um, so the first sex in the city, um, cause I'm kind of a, you know, a Carrie girl. So the first sex in the city, a lot of it was about, um, Carrie's struggles financially. Mm. And when they rebooted it recently, HBO max rebooted it. Um, Sarah, Jessica Car- the Carrie character has married Mr. Big and she's extremely wealthy. Mm. I'm not talking about like wealthy. I'm talking like hundred million dollar wealthy where she can write a check for like half a million dollars wow. and it just it doesn't have the same resonance for me no. of course not I can't identify with her going to the Met Gala I can't identify with her shopping at these very expensive boutiques I like the old Carrie that would figure out how to get a free pair of shoes you know what I'm yeah. saying yeah exactly well I mean I
1: think Kurt Vonnegut said you know good writing is about creating characters you love And then spending the next hundred pages doing horrible things to them, you know, because that's that's life that simulates life. That's what people want to see. They want to say they want to see something that says, hey, this is not just you. We're all dealing with this stuff. Mm. And that's what the the indie presses are doing. They're picking up the slack and, you know, they're 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 producing publishing books that they think do that they you know like me for tea i mean i can't speak to them in terms of what are their criteria for publishing but as far as i can see they pick a book because they like it and they think it's powerful and they think it should be out there and then they figure out how to market it later we'll figure it out but let's buy you know books we let's buy books we like books that we want to we we want to read stories that we want to hear told you know and that's what a lot of the small presses are doing and and you know god bless them because without them we'd all be reading about you know um elizabeth whose nanny you know can't make it for the weekend and she has to take her kids to the opera you know <laughs> which you know is not part of my experience i, don't I know. could care
0: less right yeah,
1: could care less yes yeah.
0: Yeah, I guess. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Well, do you want to read another portion, maybe the dialogue portion? Yeah. And then um, I, I also want to tell people that they can find your book on at all retailers. And the book is called The Very Special Dad. But you can also just go to the MFT Press, Meet for Tea Press website and buy it directly there. On a, a square, or and you can also get Girl Austin Found on Alien Buddha Press. I think I got it on Amazon because I wanted it free, I needed it quickly. And then We Are Not Okay by Indie Blue. Oh, such a beautiful essay collection. Juno Diaz actually called it a moving meditation on American parody. So right. get her three books, everyone that's listening in. And for um, people who share this, please send me a shout out on Twitter. Or on Apple um, Podcasts, leave me a, a note, and I will put you in a drawing for one of her books. Mm-hmm. Okay, fantastic! And um, I completely- and tell people where they can find
1: you. Oh, uh, they can find me at um, www christian christian com, and I'm on Twitter as ch livermore, and um, Facebook. You know, it's just you know Facebook slash Christian Livermore, and um, Instagram. Instagram ch Livermore and Blue Sky, I think it's ch Livermore as well. So what's try- blue sky? Uh, blue sky is a new social media okay. thing, yeah platform. They seem to be doing pretty well. And All threads, yeah, threads ch Livermore. Um so yeah. Well how many minutes do we have left? Because I this oh, is oh
0: you yeah you got t- five, t- five to ten minutes. Read as yes. long as you want. So this one is seven twenty-four. Perfect. Uh, Okay.
1: And this was the one you said you liked. So yeah. Oh, yay. I'm having all of a sudden a reduction in eye in uh, eyesight. Okay. So here we go. This is after bent has, um, you know, put the waiters away and he's got the crabs in the back of his truck and, um, he stops to, uh, every morning he goes to this, um, diner littles to see his friends, um, from, you know, childhood, but they're all fishermen now. Um, So, okay, here we go. Bent climbed the steps, his booths thrumming on the wooden porch slats. The big window sweated, and inside it was like Christmas morning, though it wasn't yet Thanksgiving. Steam rose off the coffee cups and the grill smoked. Colorful penny candy sparkled in row after row of big glass apothecary jars, red fireballs and Swedish fish, orange and green and purple jelly beans, black and red lope, red lope red rope licorice, wound around old wooden spools like boat line. Sometimes Bent was numb to it, but other times, this morning, it struck him. The smells, the colors, the look of the place, all just as it had been for a hundred years and more, and his breath caught in his chest. He paused at the counter and took the mug of coffee Sandy poured when she saw him through the window, the porcelain stinging as it thawed his icy hands. She made a note on her order pad and tucked the pencil behind her ear. Can I have an orange juice too? She wrinkled her nose, drawing its red freckles closer together. With your stomach? No, orange juice is too acidic. I'll bring you apple juice. I don't like apple juice. Tough. Sandy filled a glass with apple juice and slid it across the counter. Bent dutifully accepted it and took his place in the booth with his buddies. He cupped his elbow briefly in one hand, but it wasn't too bad now just the arthritis making it seem worse than it was. Tell Holland reached for his flask and spiked Bent's coffee with whiskey and finished telling of the man from the gas company who'd called to Dunham at supper. I said, what'd you do with the money I gave you last month? The men laughed. The story probably wasn't true. Tell stories hardly ever were, but they liked the bravado, what they hoped Tell had said to the bill collector, what they wished they could say themselves. "'Sandy came round with the pot and topped everybody up, "'and Tell tipped the flask over each man's cup "'and sighed his heavy sigh. "'Tell me something, can you? "'Why are we all made to suffer?' "'The others groaned. "'They'd heard this saw before, but Tell was off "'and there wasn't any stopping him now, "'nor Gravel either, who'd be starting next with his talk. "'Original sin, boy. "'There was Gravel off and running.' Eve ate of the tree of knowledge and made her old man do it too, and now we're all forever sunk in sin and condemned to toil in vain for our own redemption. Oh, that's nothing but a hoax, said Tell. Oddments of Roman Catholic bullshit meant to keep the kiddies in train, stop them playing with theirselves when the old folks shut the lights for the night. Nope, this, my friends, is all there is. Christ help us if that's true. It's a ball ache, said Tell. Why don't you kill yourself then, said Gravel. In this weather, not on your life. What's the fucking weather got to do with it? Nothing if you do it right, said Tell. If you've killed yourself, sure, it makes no difference if you're lying dead on the frozen tundra. Weather's well, a help to you then, ain't it? Keep your body preserved, looking all spiffy for the wake, for your ma to say her fare thee wells? It's if you make a hash of it. That's where you got problems, right? If you slip with the gun, blow yourself only part ways to hell. Then there's you lying in the bitter fucking cold, two, three days, maybe, if you done it like a man way off in the woods somewhere so your family don't have to find you, your blood oozing out the hole you blew in yourself, and nobody around to help you, and you slowly freezing to death. And then you turn into a ghost. Sandy was wiping down the counter. Everybody turned to look at her. Tell cocked his head. A ghost? Sandy nodded. That's what my grandmother always said. You kill yourself, you leave unfinished business, so you come back as a ghost. Your grandmother was one witchy broad, Tell said. Go ahead, scoff, Sandy said. Kill yourself and see if it's not true. But don't come haunting me because I got a bad heart. $1,500 a month, Tell was saying. Eddie, the cook, had come out from behind the grill and was leaning against the counter, wiping his hands on his apron. And that's just to turn the key in the lock. Then there's the mortgage, taxes. Already you're more than twice the cost of a reasonable rent. Now what if the furnace breaks? $500. What if the basement floods? $2,000. New roof? $15,000. Garbage collection, utilities, yard work. You're a young guy. Why do you want to saddle yourself with that kind of debt? But then I own my own house, Eddie said. You don't own your house. The bank owns your house. You'll never own your house. All you'll have is a bunch of bills and agita. A young guy coming on the market now, Gravel said, $200,000 mortgage at 6%. 20 years, it'll be paid. Then he owns the house. $200,000, where's he buying? Appalachia? This is Easterly, boy. You're looking at four fifty dollars at the least. And that's just the mortgage. You're going to pay that on a cook's wages? And then there's the home equity loans. What home equity loans? unexpected repairs college for the kids vacation to disney world i won't you will everybody does so you borrow the original 450 on a 30 year mortgage pay 300,000 in intern interest plus the principal and by the time you make your last payment you've given the bank 775,000 or you die the bank sells your house to recoup the unpaid balance and your wife and kids are left with nothing why not stick with nothing It's more realistic. I'm telling you, home ownership is the biggest swindle swindle perpetrated on working people since work. Oh, my God, said Gravel. What? You're a communist. The men all laughed. I don't think I'm a communist. Capitalism sucks. Communism sucks. Every system ever invented by man sucks. We can stop there.
0: Oh my God. I'm so glad you read that section. Thank you. It it almost reminded me of this scene and I think it's Finnegan's wake or maybe it's Ulysses where these people are kind of going back and forth in a bar. Like you have that same sensibility. Mm. Uh, It's beautifully done. So thank you. And the the economic part was very overt there. Yeah. And also, I think it also points to something that really aggravates me that people
1: portray. Uh, working people as they, they portray them as stupid and they're right. not stupid, you know um, you know, tell is the kind of guy who can do all that math in his head and he could look at a boat and give you the measurements and how much of, you know, how much resin it's going to cost, how much this, how much that, go out, you got to have this, you need this much ballast, you know, these are, these are smart people, you know, they're, they're just using their skills for something, you know, different than a, you know, a, a hedge fund manager, or something like that. And one of those acceptable professions, and they're looked down on it for it, for that, but they're not stupid.
0: Not at all. They are not stupid. No. So what are your upcoming events? Tell people what you're working on for next? What's your next project?
1: My next project is, I think I spoke about this last time, but now I have pages, so it's real. Um, A woman, I'm playing with what's going to happen, so I'm changing things. I'm trying to figure out what I can and can't say. Okay. Uh, Experiences a terrible, terrible loss, and um, she gets sober because of that. But also in order to deal with this horrible loss, um, her sister comes to be with her and kind of take care of her. And she convinces her, not trying to hoodwink her, but she's really thinking this. She convinces her sister that she's she's got a shine and that she can, you know, see the future now because of this tragedy that's happened to her. And, and the woman kind of gets nagged into doing it and so she winds up opening a um fortune teller's parlor in her oh. in, in her front room and um things are going okay until a man comes in who um has killed his wife and he knows that she knows and so yeah i don't know what's going to happen after that
0: oh i love it i love
1: We're it doing the beat the uh, things the beat guys used to do the way they'd you know yeah. Their fingers. yeah I think it's I think it's a go I think it's a true thing and I think I finally shed this this notion of how a sentence should sound and be structured to be literary you know um you know I hear, I hear all these writers and there's nothing wrong with it but I'm interested in the ways in which you know um you know, and they're just this very literary sort of inside talk and that's just not what I Want to talk yeah. about what I want to deal in, and I think it's um, hopefully going to be a true thing. That's what I always try to write is a true thing, and I think it's going to be a true thing. And I think it's going to be
0: maybe for the first time um, exactly what I want to write. Mm. You know? Well, yeah. Amen to that. Because I mean, I I really do think it's going to be true and it's going to be brilliant. Um, the way you write is the way I write, and I channel, and you clearly channel, and you yeah. just got to let the muse take you, man. Right. that's why the best albums are the first ones when, yeah. you know
1: yeah before the marketers get their hooks into
0: you Man, yeah. who needs overproduction yeah you know yeah. just write yeah. something true and so that we're, we're going to end on that i want to thank you for coming on you are so brilliant everyone go out and look up christian livermore on her website www.christianlivermore.com like it sounds Pick up her book from Meat for Tea Press, The Very Special Dead, and pick up Girl Lost Frown from Alien Buddha Press, and We Are Not Okay from Indie Blue Press. So thank you, Kirsten. I have all three of your books here. I know. I, that makes me so happy. I love your work. I just love it. I'm so glad you have these three books, and you're going to have many more. Thank you for being here, and sure. uh, let's wave everyone out. Bye, everyone. Bye.